You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter, and joining me today is Frank Clark, supervisor of Historic Foodways at Colonial Williamsburg. We're so glad to have you with us here today, Frank. Well, thank you, Harmony. It's a pleasure to be here. I asked you here today to talk about whiskey, but before we get into whiskey, I think we better touch on water. Well, we have a lot of options in terms of beverages today. Uh, we have all, all sorts of versions of clean water and milk that's been pasteurized and sterilized. We have sodas and soft drinks and uh, endless supply of, of different things to, to drink. But 200 years ago, the choices were much more limited. Uh, you basically came down to alcoholic beverages and non-alcoholic beverages. And, and the non-alcoholic beverages are much more limited than we're used to today because of safety factors. Water just isn't always obtainable, clean, and pure. And that was well known for a long time. And water can make you very sick. It can kill you. Milk can kill you if it's not pasteurized and sterilized and dealt with properly. So because those things were so dangerous uh, and there was really no way of knowing whether it was good milk or bad milk or good water or bad water, uh, most people avoided them and drank the alcoholic beverages, which were known to be safe. What are those beverages? Well, alcoholic beverages come basically in two forms. Uh, you have fermented beverages, which are a result of the natural process of fermentation created by yeast, a single-cell organism that eats sugars and produces alcohol and carbon dioxide. Those fermented beverages would include beer, cider, wine. Uh, those are the basic fermented beverages uh, for during this period. But you can take that fermented beverage and through the process of distillation, turn it into a distilled beverage. What this does is in fact, alcohol boils at a slightly lower temperature than water. And so by putting these things in a still and heating it to the right temperature, you can get the alcohol to boil off, leaving behind the water. That alcohol will go through tubes, condense back into a liquid again, and uh, be in a much more pure form. So by distilling fermented beverages, you can create distilled beverages, which have much, much higher concentrations of alcohol in them, and will never go bad. And that's one of the main reasons why people distill things, is that it, it extends the life. So that is one of the reasons why alcohol became so important to our colonial forefathers, is that there weren't a lot of other safe alternatives to it at the time. Now, most people on a daily basis drank a very low consumption alcohol, like a small beer, which may be 2 or 3 4% alcohol. So it's not like they're necessarily drinking whiskey all day long, uh, but they are drinking alcohol all day long. They are, however, drinking some, going off and working, coming back, drinking some, uh, going off and eating, coming back and drinking some, that sort of a thing. So if you consume, say, four or five beers throughout the course of a day, it takes about an hour for your body to process one ounce of alcohol. So you can basically maintain uh, not being drunk, even though you've had five or six beers throughout the day. Where are these people getting alcohol? Are they making it at home? Sure. They're making it themselves. They're buying it imported from England and imported from all over the world. Uh, the distilled spirits, the molasses uh, down in the Caribbean being the most common until the revolution, uh, it was being distilled in the Caribbean. It was also brought up as molasses to New England and being distilled there uh, and then shipped to Virginia as well. Uh, and rum was, was very common and very affordable, especially prior to the, to the war as such. Um, they're making their own beer at home. Generally in Virginia, they use molasses to brew that beer. Molasses, hops, and wheat uh, bran or oat bran that they would boil together, uh, put in yeast and ferment it, uh, and, and make that into what they called small beer here. 
Uh, they're also making cider, pressing apples into cider. And cider and, 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 and its peach version known as mobley, which is fermented peach juice, uh, were very popular in colonial Virginia. How do we know about these, um, the history of these beverages in the colonial period? Well, if you read the accounts of people like Landon Carter, he talks about planting barley, turning it into malt, brewing from it. Uh, he talks about uh, peaches and, and, and those sorts of things. We know from the number of stills found on inventories that people are distilling things at home on a regular basis. Now, some of that may have been alcohol, but sometimes they might have distilled other things, perfumes or uh, flavored waters, cinnamon water or caraway water or that sort of thing, which wouldn't necessarily be alcoholic, but they're certainly using stills at home. Uh, we know from the number of descriptions of brewing equipments uh, and, and those sorts of situations, looking at inventories for things like yeasts and hops and uh, molasses and those kinds of things, we find large quantities of those in many households. In fact, from looking at inventories, I've found about 80 households here in town that I think were probably producing molasses beer uh, for their own consumption at home. Now this is a topic that you know fairly intimately, not only from the perspective of research, but you've actually tried your hand at recreating a lot of these brews. Absolutely. We do that, in fact, four times in the spring and four times in the fall. We present our program, The Arts and Mysteries of Brewing, at the uh, Governor's Palace Scullery. Uh, and our intention there is to show folks the, the brewing process itself uh, and how, how beer was produced at that time. And we work with a wide variety of colonial styles of beers. All recipes that I've found in um, brewer's manuals written during the period. It's been a great deal of work in the sense that a, a brewer's manual is written for a professional brewer and is dealing with huge quantities, often 250 to 400 gallons per, per batch. Uh, we're making 10 gallons. So we have to sort of do some reverse mathematics to kind of reduce these recipes down to reasonable quantities for us to work with in our actual uh, brewing situation. And we're always sort of tweaking the recipes a little bit and here and there to make sure that we're getting closer to our understanding of, of what things were at the time. So it's been a, a long research really for me. In fact, we discovered a few years ago uh, um, a way to translate the 18th century measurements uh, to give alcoholic strength in beers to modern measurements, which we could finally understand. And when we did that, we realized that we were making one of our beers, the porter, too strong. So we had to change the recipe for that beer to make it more in line with the alcohol readings we were getting from the period. So, what were their measurements and what are ours? Well, well, they, they use a scale known as Brewer's Pounds. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's, it's a very difficult mathematical scale that is converted through a formula to give you an alcoholic percentage. Uh, today, people use one of two scales, either plateau or or bricks, which are, are scales that were invented by these gentlemen and, and came in in the 19th century and are a little bit easier to read. Uh, when you buy the device known as a hydrometer or a sacrometer in the 18th century, it'll have those scales on it. Uh, the problem is that none of the modern scale hydrometers have brewer's pounds on it. So trying to figure out a reading that was written in brewer's pounds into a modern scale measurement didn't make any sense at all to me until I finally found a, a fellow in England who was an old brewer in England who s said that they used to use brewer's pounds up until the 30s or 40s as a common measurement still in England. And he knew a formula to convert them over to, uh, to the, the brick scale, actually, which I could use. Uh, so I was able to get from him that formula and then go back to the, the 18th century manuals, look at the recipes and the readings, and then convert those over into a number that I could actually understand. Uh, once we did that, we realized, well, okay, we're putting too much, too much sugar in the porter. We have to cut back the recipe a little bit. It was, 
we were making them about 8% alcohol, and it turns out most of them were about 6.5% alcohol. So we then reduced the strength of that beer because of that. So it's been something that we've spent a lot of time researching, and, and we like to show folks the, the process of the brewing with the, the brewing programs in the spring and fall. You talked a little bit about rum and, uh, and whiskey. I'd like to hear a little bit about the importance that those American beverages play um, when the revolution begins. Well, that's the thing, is, is once the war starts, uh, and especially once the Chesapeake Bay is blockaded in the 1780, the access to the, the beverages from England and the, the cheap rum from the Caribbean and the molasses to make your own sugar or to make your own small beer, for that matter, uh, kind of dries up. And so they have to find alternatives that are native here in Virginia. Uh, and, and really, in this period, the most popular alternative becomes cider uh, and then whiskey. Whiskey is extremely important economically to America, especially after the war, because it allows us to convert a perishable, bulky commodity like corn into a, an unperishable uh, item as such uh, that takes up a lot less space. So especially as people start spreading west and they're farming out in, in very rural areas, moving and transporting the corn to markets becomes very difficult. If you could distill wagon loads of corns down into one barrel of whiskey, that whiskey will never go bad. It's much easier to transport than barrels full of corn, uh, and you get a lot more money for whiskey than you do for corn. So that's exactly what happens, is the farmers out in the western part of America begin to make their own whiskey uh, and then um, turn their excess crop into that uh, rather as a way of selling it and, and making money. It's so interesting to see the part that alcohol plays in America's history. Do you think that people understand the role of alcohol in the revolution? Not really, because you also have to understand that the culture that, that is surrounding it at the time is also uh, interwoven into everything you do. When, when the Burgesses leave the Capitol building because they're expelled by the governor, they don't go home. They go to the Raleigh Tavern, and they sit there, and, and they continue their discussions over bowls of punch, over glasses of porter or ale, uh, over wine, over whatever they chose to drink. Uh, but alcohol was certainly there. Uh, and in the taverns in New England, uh, the Sons of Liberties get their start in their uh, taverns up in Boston and, and places like that. So the, the tavern in many cases was, was the political uh, hotbed of the revolution because that's the one place where everybody can meet together and basically talk as freely as they want. Um, with a few exceptions. Uh, but, you know, short of treason, you're able to speak your mind in a tavern, uh, certainly unlike you were able to speak your mind in church, the other place that everybody in the 18th century would gather. Uh, so I think because of, of the social setup of the taverns and, and their, their role is often underestimated in terms of the revolution because they are the, the places where all these discussions really occur uh, and can occur in sort of a free and open atmosphere. To support the podcast and Colonial Williamsburg programs, visit history.org slash donate. We love hearing from you. Visit history.org slash podcasts and click comment at the top of the page to drop us a line.